Welcome back to the Nomi Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Nomi Podcast, the place where we get real about what makes us tick, thrive, and sometimes even stumble. I'm Madeline. And I'm Cynthia. Together, we're here to bring you a fresh perspective on a topic that's close to our hearts, and likely yours too self-worth. Despite the fact that it's something we all navigate daily, it remains such a personal journey. Today, we're peeling back the layers of how we perceive our value beyond the accolades and applause. We're joined by Chloe, a seasoned coach and the creative force behind West Haven, who's no stranger to the ebbs and flows of self-perception. She's here to share her expertise and her story. We'll delve into the sticky web of beliefs that can hold us back, and more importantly, we'll explore how to gently untangle them. From the messages we absorb to the messages we repeat to ourselves, we're going to get into the thick of what shapes our sense of worth. And with a world that's in constant motion, we'll talk about how to keep that sense of worth steady. It's like finding your balance while walking on a moving sidewalk. I like that analogy. We'll also address the tough stuff. How do we handle the need for external validation without letting it define us? So grab your coffee or your tea, get comfy, and let's dive in. This is the Nomi Podcast. So first and foremost, welcome to the podcast, Chloe. Thanks, Madeline. I'm so excited to be here with you and Cynthia. Yes. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. It is November, which feels like a wild thing to be saying. Around this time of year, one of the things that comes up for me, comes up for my clients is all year long, I have this life that is independent and within my own home and within my own brain where I really feel like I'm myself. And then I go home for the holidays or I see family or I see friends I haven't seen in a long time. And there almost seems to be this super stark contrast between who I am as a person in my normal day-to-day life. And all those legacy versions of myself. And sometimes I feel like there's not a permission to just be this new version of myself and that I have to take all of this external input on who I am and if what I'm doing is okay. And it just makes my head spin. I can understand and relate to what you're saying. There's the part of you that is this new version of yourself. And then there's also the part of you that falls back into old habits, whether Mm. it's like behaviors Mm. or thought patterns or whatever it might be. And so I also struggle with that part of knowing better, knowing this better version of myself that I've been working and growing and then still being around people who might have their own things that they haven't worked on or their own ways of looking at me. And then I more naturally can slide back into those old tendencies. What comes to mind for me is, am I living my life? Am I portraying my life with other people's expectations of me? Or am I living my life from inside out or from outside Mm -hmm. in? And we know with identity, it gets a little tricky because we definitely have a big chunk of our lives, say from zero to 18, where we have to, for survival, live our lives outside in because we're learning just to survive. And it's such a challenging shift, isn't it? Because when we talk about living outside in, the the term that comes up is external validation. Mm. And this is something that would come up actually a lot when I was in the full-time workforce was this idea of, I want to feel like I'm good at my job and I don't want to tell my boss that I really need my boss to tell me I'm doing a good job now and again and that my work is okay. Mm. And even in our personal lives, checking in with my husband on what do you think of this and what do you think of that? And it's when we find ourselves in these in-between spaces where we're still not quite sure of ourselves. 
we don't have that confidence or that self-worth yet around what we're doing or around this new step that we're taking. And so we're still in that tween phase where we do regress a little bit into this I need other people to tell me that this is okay before I know it's okay kind of vibe. Yeah, so it's that messy middle of trying to figure out who you are in this new space. When I am introduced to somebody new is an opportunity to experiment with a new way of describing what I do and mm-hmm. seeing how when I walk away from that conversation, how that sits with me. And there are definitely times where I'm like, whoa, that is definitely not <laughs> what, yeah. that's definitely not what I thought I would feel after saying that. Mm-hmm. But being a little bit more in tune with that personal feeling when you're done describing something or you're walking away from a conversation and being able to reflect and adjust from there. I love that you're using this word experimenting because it brings up one of our favorite words, which is lifelong curiosity. And we can't be experimenting if we're bumping into judgment after judgment. Life is going to be a series of me redefining, fine-tuning, experimenting and adding on and subtracting and modifying and embracing and all of this kind of stuff. And that's okay. I don't have to have it all defined at any given point. And if I, if that's my objective, then I'm going to bump into some really big problematic obstacles. Life is not static. And Mm. therefore, you can't be either as Mm -hmm. an individual. You're a dynamic human and being able to redefine and pivot based on what's going on in your life, but what's going on in the world, it's natural. We don't Mm -hmm. treat it as natural, but it's completely Mm. natural. This is why I think it's so important to create the constant for ourselves because this volatility, these ups and downs, if we don't have a stable grounded center or this constant, then it can feel like our emotional landscape also has those hills and valleys and our mental landscape has that and our physical landscape can have that. In this self-esteem workbook that I stole off my mom's bookshelves when I was home, (laughs) there's this beautiful depiction of self-worth. It shows all of these external factors as a squiggly line, right? So it goes up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And then this straight line that cuts right through the middle. And it shows that if your self-worth is external to you, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down with everything environmental because your brain can't really disassociate your external value if you're putting it there from the external situation. So when things are good, your worth is good. When things are not so great, your worth goes down. But if you create that constant, this center that cuts through your self-worth, your self-esteem can be that stability, then as this volatility comes, it allows us to really see opportunity and see the beauty that's available to us. But it takes hard work because we are trained to have all of this external to us. And so we learn the wave and no one teaches us how to create that constant. I like to use the visual of my 18th birthday, my caregivers lovingly pack two suitcases and tell me it's everything I'm going to need for my journey of life. A lot of times we take those 
suitcases with our beliefs, with our imposed values and strengths, and off we go. I went off with my suitcases saying, I was told I have everything I need. Here I go, here I go, and never checked and peeked in. And they were fully loaded, so there was no room for anything else, my own beliefs that I wanted to adopt. And so we want to make sure that our suitcases of life don't turn into baggage, and they turn into baggage and they're very heavy when we don't peek in and just confirm that we want to carry these things through our life. Yeah, I'm getting this visual, Cynthia, of opening up the suitcases and like pulling out the clothes and seeing what actually still fits. And sometimes we're also forced to dump them out a little bit and rifle through because we have these big life events that happen to us, like a job loss or uh, if you have a kid or if you move suddenly or if something happens to a loved one where you have to shift all of a sudden into a caregiver position or any of these big externally controlled circumstances, Mm -hmm. which then causes you to have to rifle through that suitcase and you realize, oh my God, it's freezing out there and there are no coats in this suitcase. How did I not know there were no coats in here? I was walking around this whole time with no protection. And now that I desperately need it, it's not there. And I walked by 700 coat shops on my way here and I never knew to walk in and grab one. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but My experience is that you don't even realize this until years have gone down Mm. the road. Mm -hmm. So to take away the metaphor in case somebody needs an an, an example, for me, something and a, a belief I had adopted as a child was from a caregiver who, Cynthia said, most likely meant well or was projecting their experience. It was a line that stuck with me through adulthood and I didn't even realize it. And that was that they used to say to me, I was not as naturally smart as my friends, and therefore I would have to work a lot harder in school to be successful. It wasn't until about halfway through college that I actually realized that this had become a self-fulfilling prophecy for me. I, I don't directly remember the exact moment, but I do remember reflecting and realizing that I was actually pretty smart. And if I actually just walked into my classrooms, walked into my tests, walked into my homework assignments with that mentality that I had the confidence in order to deliver and perform in the way that school needed me to. Mm. And so my grades actually ended up following suit and I ended up finishing college the second half with much better grades than I did in the first half of college, which was really interesting. And it opened up this whole new world for me in terms of what I could succeed at in my personal and professional life. The other thing that was interesting, though, was that it wasn't until my 30s that I realized the second half of that sentence had also impacted me that you have to work harder than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I, I have taken a look back and reflected on that. And that's tr- really true. What I had ended up working harder than every friend or coworker that I really had. And I had the health issues to prove it. At the age of 25, I ended up having gallbladder disease, which is something that they didn't even think to look for because I was so young at the time that it took months to be diagnosed with that. In my career, several years later, I ended up being promoted to a director level position, which at the small business I was at was part of the executive team. And I had a lot of leadership responsibilities. My body was screaming at me at this point and continued to have health issues because I wasn't prioritizing my health. And it wasn't until my 30s that I realized 
it wasn't just the first half of that comment that had stuck with me. It was also the second mm. half in terms of I have to work harder than everyone else. It's amazing the damage these seemingly trivial repeated sentences can do. Mm -hmm. So my version mm -hmm. of this was when a boss at a startup who to a startup founder, this would be a compliment was I do B plus work, but at least I'm fast. And so my thing was my speed is my only thing that's good about my work. Similar to you, that turned into overworking, staying up till like 10, 11 p.m. before I started signing off because it was all about the velocity of my projects because that's the praise I was given. And it, it destroyed me. Psychologically, I would cry at my desk every day. My husband was like, excuse me, this is not normal. And I'm like, it's fine. I really think this job is good for me. But yeah, I don't know, mom, did you ever have one of these that stuck with you? Oh, gosh, not only one, several. But the one that's the most poignant for me is what I was telling myself. And this is what's so dangerous. Kids don't have the wherewithal to be able to decipher the meanings from the adults in their life, right? So you get a teacher that no malice intended. They truly believe it on their adult level. But then they tell it to a kid and we interpret it in our in our own way. I was doing some internal family systems work and part of the work is really intense visualizations. And what came up for me was this vision of me being, I would say I was around nine or 10. I was sitting in the backyard of my house on my suitcase. In my suitcase was my top drawer of my room, which was basically my underwear and socks. And I was sitting there waiting for someone to notice that I was gone. But it was the day. Back in the days, we weren't really scheduled. So we would go outside. And as long as we came back before it got dark, that's all. And I waited and it started to get dark. And my mother had this cowbell. And she would just hang her arm out the window or the door to call us in. So she rang the cowbell and being the dutiful person I was at nine and 10, I walked in the house. My mother said to me, make sure you put those things away before you come down for dinner. And I carried that vision with me till my 40s or 50, early 50s of I'm not valuable. I'm not even missed. How did they not know that I was running away from home? Sure, I only made it halfway through the backyard, but they let all those hours. And the most important thing was, Cynthia, make sure you put those things away before you come down for dinner. I think it also goes to show that not all of these things come in words, right? They mm -hmm. can be slight people ignoring us or actually the absence of words, the absence of energy given, the mm -hmm. absence of attention given, that mm -hmm. can be just as devastating. And it can take decades when we don't even realize it's what's left unsaid that's done the damage, not just what's been said to us. And then what we continue to say, it has a name, right? Our inner critic. I was after naming the different parts that I had adopted to keep me quote unquote, safe. And so when I had that realization, I could see it permeating what I allowed myself to say to myself year after year after year. That was what I needed to start paying attention to and modify that language. What did I need to tell that little girl so that she could tell the adult that I was currently? Obviously, these examples that we just gathered here came freely to mind because they had big impact and we 
we've had time to think about them, but not everybody, I think, is as aware of these things. One tool that was introduced to me when my husband and I went to a couples counselor is she talked about, I believe it's part of ACT, so Acceptance Commitment Therapy. The tool was around if you feel drawn to do something versus if you feel driven to do it, which is really interesting as well, because we use the word driven as a characteristic that's supposed to be, mm. quote unquote, good. And she had said to just make myself aware of, could I be OK if I didn't do something? And if the answer to that was no, then it was probably a driven activity. And if it was yes, and I wanted to do it, it was a drawn activity, meaning if I wouldn't be okay if I signed off work at 10 because my boss would be upset that I didn't stay till 11 that night to finish the project and I wasn't going to be okay. That's probably a driven thing if I stayed on. Mm -hmm. But if I was lost in the creativity and it was worth in my flexible hours, sacrificing an extra hour to stay in the creative flow and then sleeping a little later the next day, that's a drawn version of it. So it can be the same task. It's just in the way we approach things. And so I think in order to find some of these sentences, whether they're internally imposed or externally mm. imposed, because we can do the damage to ourselves, absolutely, is to really follow this trail of what are the things, what are the actions I'm taking, the things I'm doing, the thoughts I'm having that are compelling me. So they're driving me with a whip rather than what are the things where if I really listen intuitively to myself, I feel very drawn to and that I'm doing because there's this personal soul level desire, even if it's only a sprinkling mm -hmm. to, to really express myself through those actions. A lot of times what I have people do is I have them visualize what you want to be known for. So write your eulogy, right? What are people saying was meaningful about you? So there's the external. And can you make that internal? Does that, re are you drawn to those qualities? Because they're not talking about that you answered that email at 1130 at night. They're not talking about how many ski trips you went on or moguls you mastered or whatever. They're talking about what we call values and strengths. They're talking about ways of being. They're talking about she was really kind. She was compassionate. She was generous of spirit. She was industrious. She was creative. And then from there, you can say, when I'm in this external situation, am I living those guiding core elements or values or strengths? And if I'm not, then back the bus up and reconfigure the external don't reconfigure the internal. It's It's a courageous act to go against what you believed to be true about yourself, what society, what your family, all these projected ways of being or values that have been imposed on you. And it's a courageous act to take a step back and get curious and realize mm -hmm. you're at choice with mm -hmm. what you believe and what you think. And then being able to redefine that success for yourself, like you were mentioning, Cynthia. And I'm curious about both of your perspectives because you two have something in common that 
I do not. What we all have in common is that we're entrepreneurs, but you two are mothers. I notice work is one place where we hinge our self-worth externally. And also parenthood, I find, is another place that we hinge our self-worth externally. And so I'm curious how you guys have managed through your own experiences to recenter that self-worth barometer within yourself. Prior to having my two-year-old that I have named Remy, I went through two pregnancy losses and really struggled with self-worth around fertility and motherhood. And if I was a mother or not, was very lucky to find a therapist who helped me grieve and reset. And I got pregnant in the middle of therapy again with my now two-year-old. And what I realized upon him entering into the world was that children are often mirrors of their parents. And so if you as a mom have low self-worth, if you put all your value in external validation, we all know there's a lot of pressure on what a good mother is and what she should sacrifice for her children. And so for me, I had to take a step back and think, do I want my son to get his self-worth from what other people have to say? Do I want him to feel bad about his his body and how he looks? At the end of the day, he's going to believe and he's going to mirror what he sees from me. Mm -hmm. And so that was really a cue for me to take a step back and get super curious about what I was believing to be true about myself and then invest in redefining what I thought was being a good mom. It made me more self-aware on how I was acting around him or what kind of energy I was bringing into the room. Being a mom to Remy is not hard. Being a mom in the society is hard. Yeah, because of what everybody else thinks you're supposed to be doing as a mom. And so I know that might not be everyone's experience. But for me, it's showing up at choice and realizing being a parent can be fun. Being a parent Mm. can create wonder in your life. It can be awe-inspiring. It can be difficult at times, but you can come into it with the patience and openness to succeed if you choose to. I love that you use the word choice because I think it is a very powerful word. And a lot of us don't think we have a choice. And so that's where we fall down. Or, But the reality is we do. We have a choice of defining anything the way we want to define it. I'm going to define myself the way I want to. I'm really lucky. I got all these things to choose from. So I might bring leadership and creativity and compassion to my parenting, but I also could choose to bring it to the office. I can also choose to bring it to my friendships and I can choose to bring it to myself. No one else gets to choose for me. And I agree with you, Chloe. It is really brave because one of the beliefs that we carry sometimes for a long time is that we don't have a choice in certain arenas. Oh, yes, we do. You don't like the definition of success? Change it. Mm. You don't like the definition of a good mother? Change it. Sure, you might have to have some multiple conversations with the person on the other end. Or you might need to move away because I'm just not your cup of tea. We don't have enough in common. Our puzzle pieces don't fit as nicely together, but that's okay. Yes, yes. Even in the in the workplace, you can feel stuck in a role and we forget that we are at choice. We mm-hmm. are at choice with who we spend our time with. We know that the people that we spend the most time with have a huge impact on how we view the world, even if we don't initially agree with them mm-hmm. on certain things. And taking a step back and realizing you are at choice with 
almost everything in your life. There are things we're not in control of, but Mm -hmm. we are at choice in how we view them or what Mm -hmm. perspective we take. Mm -hmm. And what you said also reminds me of a quote that my coach shared with me that has stuck with me. And that is, if you don't love it, change it. And Mm -hmm. if you can't change it, leave it. Remove yourself from that environment. Mm -hmm. There are two words that are popping up in my mind. One of them is risk and the other one is bravery. Because I think when we talk about being at choice and decisions, even whether it's decisions in our perspectives or decisions in our lives, or we talk about making change, these things can feel really risky. Mm -hmm. And that risk can invite fear in. And so we talk a lot on this podcast about how important curiosity is. But I also think bravery is really important. And I'm going to be very specific. When I mean bravery, I don't mean like serious charging head on into risk that might kill you type bravery. Bravery can be very fun. It's funny because I joke a lot about being more of a risk taker when I was younger because I literally turned 18 and the next day moved to China for university and I'd never been to China before aside from visiting the campus. I spoke no Mandarin. Like It was a very wild decision. I sat with this recently because I thought to myself, have I lost my ability to take risks. And I actually realized that when I did that, it was less to do with risk because at the time I had a scholarship. If I didn't like it, I could have come home. I was in a very privileged position to be able to have failed in that circumstance. But it really was this, that in that choice, in that perspective, I had acceptance around the idea of failing. I had scheduled enough slack for myself that failure was always an option for me. So my worst case scenario was, I hate this, I can't do it, and I come home and I start again, right? And I deemed that as long as I wasn't spending too much money on the experience, which I wasn't because I had the scholarship, that I would be fine. And so in my adulthood, I've tried to reintegrate this idea of tiny risks, of creating fun bravery for myself. And so my best example, again, was this pottery class this morning where I sat down at this wheel and I haven't done ceramics since I was little. And I remember the loving it. And I was like, I know myself. I'm going to get angry if I'm not immediately good at this. And so I need to take a second before I touch anything to just get okay with this being a messy three hours of my life. And it was so fun. It was so joyous. And it was brave. It was brave to put myself in a position where I knew it would frustrate me if I didn't do well and do it anyways and give myself the grounded grace to try. Yes, that is so natural when we're doing something new, right? It's, I think it's human nature that we want to be excellent at something the first time we do it. And then we get super frustrated with ourselves. We might choose to not do it ever again because we like to be able to do things that we're good at. We like to look Mm -hmm. smart. We like to have that validation from ourselves and from others. And I love that idea of taking tiny risks. I I call them stretch goals. So setting Mm -hmm. stretch goals for yourself. You don't have to move to China like Madeline, right? What do you go for it? But it doesn't have to look like that. We can build upon this vision that we have for ourselves and our lives by doing the small things bit by bit. And so that might look like doing a podcast interview before you do a TED Talk or creating an Instagram reel before you do a live webinar. It can look different for different people. We all have different personal tolerance levels to risk, but making sure that you aren't getting frustrated and or stopping yourself completely from doing something Mm. that you feel drawn to do because you're worried about failing. Mm. Instead, create those small 
moments where you can build the courage, you can build the confidence in what you're doing. And then that will help you reach that big goal and help with encouraging you to continue to stretch and to continue and grow. Lean into uncomfortable. They call them growing pains for a reason. If your goal is to reach the top of the roof and you have your 12 foot ladder, you're not going to get to the top of the roof in a single bound. And so you're going to get to it one step at a time. And and then you might forget the hammer that you need for the roof. So you go down one step at a time and then you go back up and that's okay. That doesn't have to be defined as failure. That can just be defined as progress. We have this tendency, especially when it comes to things like our self-worth and our self-esteem to attack the biggest hole in the leaky bucket first. And when we're already in a state of depletion, that can cause more harm than good sometimes. I often try and tell myself and my clients to be creative. Like when we talk about these things like bravery or building risk tolerance or becoming more flexible or any of these values, strengths, characteristics, whatever you want to call them, we have the tendency to think that it has to be in the domain where we're struggling, right? I have to create flexibility and resilience and creativity within my job because it's my job that's really causing me to suffer. Maybe not. Maybe Mm. you do those things in a hobby or in a different place and then you apply those strengths somewhere else, right? There's a reason why there was the whole trope or stereotype about footballers doing ballet. They didn't have to be stretching on a football field in order to gain the skills for the sport that they played as their primary job. If you want to be more creative, if you want to train your curiosity, maybe you do go to a craft studio and explore something new. And maybe it's best for you to circumvent the toxic or problematic space that's depleting your self-esteem and self-worth and give yourself the ability to do something that does feel more joyful, that you do enjoy more because those environments are going to be more conducive to your learning. And those learnings aren't going anywhere. They live inside of you. Mm -hmm. So wherever you show up with them, you're going to thrive with them. Go after the low lying fruit. You're still going to gain all of these wonderful things as far as bravery and curiosity and resilience. It doesn't have to be the all or nothing. What I also like about that is to change a belief, we first have to recognize that it's a belief, Mm -hmm. get curious, and then we have to fact check it, essentially. Do I have evidence that says this is true or not true. Uh, And so when we're creating a new belief or a new way of thinking, what evidence can you create for yourself that will help you reframe that belief? So it might be going to a pottery class and trying Mm -hmm. something new or doing ballet. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be directly related, like you said, Madeline, but creating this evidence for yourself so that it becomes more and more true over time. I would make one tiny adjustment, which is evidence into the word data. And that only reason I'm saying that is because something triggered in my brain. I loved that nugget you just gave, Chloe. But sometimes when we're in a place where we feel low self-worth, the evidence we can seem to collect might not be that honest (laughs) because we have confirmation bias and uh, our brains go to a negative place. And you said it a hundred times before, being curious about that evidence and turning it into just another data point. It's not 
evidence to prove your theory that you're worthless, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As long as it's neutral and it sits in a neutral place, Mm -hmm. that is what we want to be collecting. We collect Mm -hmm. data. We collect this evidence. We keep it neutral. We let it speak for itself. We get curious about the many things it can mean. And there's so much more energy that comes into the collection and analytics before we ever conclude. And a conclusion is not static. It just influences our hypothesis to send us in another round of experimentation. Is this data emotionally charged? Is it charged with a perspective or is it neutral? Is it something that I really Mm. can see from many angles? And if you find yourself looking at a piece of evidence or a piece of data and being very fixed in your perspective of that evidence, chances are it's got charge to it and it's not neutral enough, which means that there's Mm. something, some sort of belief going on that's causing you to skew in one direction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's ask yourself, is this without a doubt 100% fact? Right. Because we can tell ourselves something is fact when Mm -hmm. it actually isn't. And so if you took yourself out of the equation, would this be true for everybody? Would Mm -hmm. this be true for everybody across the board? Mm -hmm. If not, then it's probably something you need to pick apart a little bit more like right. that exactly yeah. honestly there are so many tools in here it's funny because my mom always jokes about how she wants to create a workbook and I feel like we could have a workbook just for this episode it's just yeah. been such a wonderful and rich place to explore mm. it's hard work and it's stuff that we're expected to do on top of just functioning as a human being there's all of these little tools and exercises and integrations that we need in order to train these skills. And there's really no time that's ever been allocated of between 25 and 30, you get five years off just to figure all of these things out. And then you reintegrate into society. (laughs) So this stuff is so important. And it's also, I think, really valuable to just take one of these tools at a time, see how it works in the essence of that experimentation culture, and really integrate it into how you're just doing life. Without further ado, the most important part of the podcast, although Chloe, you almost took the crown with the quote from your coach, but <laughs> the the most important part is Cynthia's quote. So what do you have for us today? So I have a quote from uh, Wayne Dyer, which is self-worth comes from one thing, thinking that you are worthy. It's one of those hard hitters, easier said than dunners. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. But so true at the same time. And Chloe, if people want to work with you, tell us a little bit about how they can do that and what you do. I am the CEO and founder of West Haven, which is a coaching and consulting practice. And we are founded on the belief that the world is a better place with more women entrepreneurs in it. At West Haven, I support aspiring and established women entrepreneurs to overcome their fears and negative self-talk and also define what their biggest, boldest vision is for their business. I also help them figure out the best way to demonstrate their expertise so that they can build credibility in a way that feels incredibly authentic to them. For those who are interested in taking that first step or they've founded a business, but they're feeling stuck, I do have a free guide that is available on my website. The guide is about overcoming your top five entrepreneurship fears. These tend to be around money, time, failure, and fear of judgment. And then, of course, there are plenty of other fears that go into the mix. So if somebody is interested in downloading that, they can find that at westhavencoaching.com slash fears. 
Amazing. We'll also put all of her contact information in the show notes. So of course, you know where to find it. And here, of course, comes our shameless plug for the Nomi Club, which is a place where you can approach and learn about all of these types of things, right? We work with all sorts of different practitioners from coaches to therapists to spiritual guides to everything in between. And we run a series of different workshops and meetups that are live but virtual, some of them even in person in order to give everyone access to support no matter if they know what that support looks like or not. So you're more than welcome to check out more on all of this at nomi.club or nomi.com. Both will lead you to the same place where you can meet some of our practitioners and also have more conversations with us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. And until next time, be well. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope our conversation provides some insight and practical ways to navigate and understand you. If you have found our show to be helpful, please pass it along. Madeline and I are hoping you will join us in creating a ripple effect of mental health and well-being. As always, thanks for listening to the Nomi Podcast. This is Cynthia and Madeline asking you to be good to you.